guys, Joe here with the Modern Heathen Man. Sorry I'm so late in getting you this episode. Um, what I decided to do was go ahead and have uh, a couple more stories for you so you can really delve into some of the mythology. So sit back, relax, grab yourself a cup, and just chill out on your couch. Get comfy in your bed, whatever you want to do, and listen to these great little stories of mythology from our past and about being heathen and our gods. Good time, guys. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Hey guys, this is Joe at Modern Heathen Man. How are you all today? Hoping you're having a good and uh, great day. Anyway, I wanted to tell you guys about this YouTube channel that I found called Midgard Musings. It's by a man named Jesse and it is incredible. He has new videos uploaded on the channel every Sunday night and he has a live Facebook stream every Sunday at 7pm um, Central Standard Time. Midgard Musings' goal is to help build heathen communities around the world with educational content and laid-back fun manner. He values the historical aspect of this path and uses it to help us grow and develop as heathens in modern times. So if you've been a heathen for a while or just brand new to it, definitely check it out. It's something worthwhile. If you'd like to support Midgard Musings by subscribing to youtube.com forward slash Midgard Musings, following on Facebook and purchasing merchandise from the Teespring and Redbubble stores. Redbubble, say that three times. All of which can be found on the YouTube channel video description. Midgard Musing also offers handmade driftwood rune sets for sale, and the purchase of these items help support the channel. Just to touch base on that a little bit, I actually own one of those rune sets. They are incredibly nice, good feel, wonderful stuff, good power within them. I'm telling you, worthwhile checking out. So please head on over to Midgard Musings, like and subscribe to the channel, and follow on Facebook and on YouTube at facebook.com slash midgardmusings and youtube.com slash midgardmusings. M-I-D-G-A-R-D-M-U-S-I-N-G-S will find you that Midgard Musings. Thanks, guys, and have a great day. Section 10 of The Children of Odin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. The Children of Odin. The Book of Northern Myths. By Parik Kolum. Part 2. Chapter 3. Odin Wins for Men the Magic Mead. It was the dwarfs who brewed the magic mead, and it was the giants who hid it away. But it was Odin who brought it from the place where it was hidden, and gave it to the sons of men. Those who drank of the magic mead became very wise, and not only that, but they could put their wisdom to such beautiful words that every one who heard would love and remember it. The dwarfs brewed the magic mead through cruelty and villainy. They made it out of the blood of a man. The man was Kvasir, the poet. He had wisdom and he had such beautiful words with it, that what he said was loved and remembered by all. The dwarfs brought Kvasir down into their caverns, and they killed him there. "'Now,' they said, "'we have Kvasir's blood and Kvasir's wisdom. No one else will have his wisdom but us.' They poured the blood into three jars, and they mixed it with honey, and from it they brewed the magic mead. Having killed a man, the dwarfs became more and more bold. 
They came out of their caverns and went up and down through Midgard, the world of men. They went into Jotunheim, and began to play their evil tricks on the most harmless of the giants. They came upon one giant who was very simple. Gilling was his name. They persuaded Gilling to row them out to sea in a boat. Then the two most cunning of the dwarfs, Galar and Fialar, steered the boat on to a rock. The boat split. Gilling, who could not swim, was drowned. The dwarfs clambered up on pieces of the boat and came safely ashore. They were so delighted with their evil tricks that they wanted to play some more of them. Galar and Fialar then thought of a new piece of mischief they might do. They led their band of dwarfs to Gilling's house and screamed out to his wife that Gilling was dead. The giant's wife began to weep and lament. At last she rushed out of the house weeping and clapping her hands. Now Galar and Fialar had clambered up on the lintel of the house, and as she came running out, they cast a millstone on her head. It struck her, and Gilling's wife fell down dead. More and more the dwarfs were delighted at the destruction they were making. They were so insolent now that they made up songs and sang them, songs that were all a boast of how they had killed Kvasir the poet, and Gilling the giant, and Gilling's wife. They stayed around Jotunheim, tormenting all whom they were able to torment, and flattering themselves that they were great and strong. They stayed too long, however. Sotung, Gilling's brother, tracked them down and captured them. Sotung was not harmless and simple like Gilling, his brother. He was cunning and he was covetous. Once they were in his hand the dwarfs had no chance of making an escape. He took them and left them on a rock in the sea, a rock that the tide would cover. The giant stood up in the water taller than the rock, and the tide as it came in did not rise above his knees. He stood there watching the dwarfs as the water rose up round them, and they became more and more terrified. "'Oh, take us off the rock, good Sotung!' they cried out to him. "'Take us off the rock, and we will give you gold and jewels. Take us off the rock, and we will give you a necklace as beautiful as Brisingamen." So they cried out to him, but the giant Sotung only laughed at them. He had no need of gold or jewels. Then Fialar and Galar cried out, "'Take us off the rock, and we will give you the jars of the magic mead we have brewed.' "'The magic mead?' said Sotung. This is something that no one else has. It would be well to get it, for it might help us in the battle against the gods. Yes, I will get the magic mead from them." He took the band of dwarfs off the rock, but he held Galar and Fialar, their chiefs, while the others went into their caverns and brought up the jars of the magic mead. Sotung took the mead and brought it to a cavern in a mountain near his dwelling. And thus it happened that the magic mead, brewed by the dwarfs through cruelty and villainy, came into the hands of the giants. And the story now tells how Odin, the eldest of the gods, at that time in the world as Vegtam the Wanderer, took the magic mead out of Suttung's possession, and brought it into the world of men. Now Suttung had a daughter named Gunnlod, and she by her goodness and her beauty was like Gerda and Skadi, the giant maids whom the dwellers in Asgard favoured. Sotung, that he might have a guardian for the magic mead, enchanted Gunnlod, turning her from a beautiful giant maiden into a witch with long teeth and sharp nails. He shut her into the cavern where the jars of the magic mead were hidden. Odin heard of the death of Kvasir, whom he honoured above all men. 
the dwarfs who slew him he had closed up in their caverns, so that they were never again able to come out into the world of men. And then he set out to get the magic mead, that he might give it to men, so that, tasting it, they would have wisdom, and words would be at their command that would make wisdom loved and remembered. How Odin won the magic mead out of the rock-covered cavern where Suttung had hidden it, and how he broke the enchantment that lay upon Gunnlod, Suttung's daughter, is a story often told around the hearths of men. Nine strong thralls were mowing in a field as a wanderer went by, clad in a dark blue cloak and carrying a wanderer's staff in his hand. One of the thralls spoke to the wanderer. Tell them in the house of Baugi up yonder that I can mow no more until a whetstone to sharpen my scythe is sent to me. Here is a whetstone, said the wanderer, and he took one from his belt. The thrall who had spoken wetted his scythe with it and began to mow. The grass went down before his scythe as if the wind had cut it. Give us the whetstone! Give us the whetstone! cried the other thralls. The wanderer threw the whetstone amongst them, leaving them quarrelling over it and went on his way. The wanderer came to the house of Baugi, the brother of Suttung. He rested in Baugi's house, and at supper-time he was given food at the great table. And while he was eating with the giant, a messenger from the field came in. "'Baugi,' said the messenger, "'your nine thralls are all dead. They killed each other with their scythes, fighting in the field about a whetstone. There are no thralls now to do your work.' "'What shall I do? What shall I do?' said Baugi the giant. My fields will not be mown now, and I shall have no hay to feed my cattle and my horses in the winter. I might work for you, said the wanderer. One man's work is no use to me, said the giant. I must have the work of nine men. I shall do the work of nine men, said the wanderer. Give me a trial and see. The next day Vegtam the wanderer went into Baugi's field, he did as much work as the nine thralls had done in a day. "'Stay with me for the season,' said Baugi, "'and I shall give you a full reward.' So Vegtam stayed at the giant's house and worked in the giant's fields, and when all the work of the season was done, Baugi said to him, "'Speak now, and tell me what reward I am to give you.' "'The only reward I shall ask of you,' said Vegtam, "'is a draught of the magic mead.' "'The magic mead?' said Baugi. I do not know where it is, or how to get it. Your brother Suttung has it. Go to him, and claim a draught of the magic mead for me." Baugi went to Suttung. But when he heard what he had come for, the giant Suttung turned on his brother in a rage. "'A draught of the magic mead?' he said. "'To no one will I give a draught of the magic mead. Have I not enchanted my daughter Gunnlod, so that she may watch over it? And you tell me that a wanderer who has done the work of nine men for you asks a draught of the magic mead for his fee. O oh, giant as foolish as Gilling! O oh, oaf of a giant! Who could have done such work for you, and who would demand such a fee from you but one of our enemies, the Aesir? Go from me now, and never come to me again with talk of the magic mead." Baugi went back to his house, and told the wanderer that Suttung would yield none of the magic mead. I hold you to your bargain, said Vegtam the wanderer, and you will have to get me the fee I asked. Come with me now and help me to get it. He made Baugi bring him to the place where the magic mead was hidden. The place was a cavern in the mountain. In front of that cavern was a great mass of stone. We cannot move that stone nor get through it, said Baugi. I cannot help you to your fee. The wanderer drew an auger from his belt. 
This will bore through the rock if there is strength behind it. You have the strength, giant. Begin now, and bore." Baugi took the auger in his hands and bored with all his strength, and the wanderer stood by leaning on his staff, calm and majestic in his cloak of blue. "'I have made a deep, deep hole. It goes through the rock,' Baugi said at last. The wanderer went to the hole and blew into it. The dust of the rock flew back into their faces. "'So that is your boasted strength, giant?' he said. "'You have not bored halfway through the rock. Work again.' Then Baugi took the auger again, and he bored deeper and deeper into the rock, and he blew into it, and lo, his breath went through. Then he looked at the wanderer to see what he would do. His eyes had become fierce, and he held the auger in his hand as if it were a stabbing knife. "'Look up to the head of the rock,' said the wanderer. As Baugi looked up, the wanderer changed himself into a snake, and glided into the hole in the rock and Baugi struck at him with the auger, hoping to kill him, but the snake slipped through. Behind the mighty rock there was a hollow place all lighted up by the shining crystals in the rock, and within the hollow place there was an ill-looking witch with long teeth and sharp nails, but she sat there rocking herself and letting tears fall from her eyes. "'Oh, youth and beauty!' she sang. "'Oh, sight of men and women! Sad, sad for me is it that you are shut away, and that I have only this closed-in cavern and this horrible form." A snake glided across the floor. "'Oh, that you were deadly, and that you might slay me!' cried the witch. The snake glided past her. Then she heard a voice speak softly, "'Gunlot! Gunlot!' She looked round, and there, standing behind her, was a majestic man, clad in a cloak of dark blue, Odin the eldest of the gods. "'You have come to take the magic mead that my father has set me here to guard,' she cried. "'You shall not have it. Rather shall I spill it out on the thirsty earth of the cavern.' "'Gunlot,' he said, and he came to her. She looked at him, and she felt the red blood of youth come back into her cheeks. She put her hands with their sharp nails over her breast, and she felt the nails drive into her flesh. "'Save me from all this ugliness,' she cried. I will save you," Odin said. He went to her. He took her hands and held them. He kissed her on the mouth. All the marks of ill-favour went from her. She was no longer bent, but tall and shapely. Her eyes became wide and deep blue. Her mouth became red, and her hands soft and beautiful. She became as fair as Gerda, the giant maid whom Frey had wed. They stayed looking at each other. Then they sat down side by side and talked softly to each other, Odin, the eldest of the gods, and Gunnlod, the beautiful giant-maiden. She gave him the three jars of the magic mead, and she told him she would go out of the cavern with him. Three days passed, and still they were together. Then Odin by his wisdom found hidden paths and passages that led out of the cavern, and he brought Gunnlod out into the light of day. And he brought with him the jars of the magic mead, the mead whose taste gives wisdom, and wisdom in such beautiful words that all love and remember it. And Gunnlod, who had tasted a little of the magic mead, wandered through the world singing of the beauty and the might of Odin, and of her love for him. CHAPTER Four. Odin tells to Vidar, his silent son, the secret of his doings. 
It was not only to giants and men that Odin showed himself in the days when he went through Jotunheim and Midgard as Vegtam the Wanderer. He met and he spoke with the gods also, with one who lived far away from Asgard, and with others who came to Midgard and to Jotunheim. The one who lived far away from Asgard was Vidar, Odin's silent son. Far within a wilderness, with branches and tall grass growing around him, Vidar sat, and near by him a horse grazed with a saddle upon it, a horse that was ever ready for the speedy journey. And Odin, now Vegtam the Wanderer, came into that silent place, and spoke to Vidar, the silent god. O oh, Vidar, he said, strangest of all my sons, God who will live when all of us have passed away, God who will bring the memory of the dwellers of Asgard into a world that will know not their power. O oh, Vidar, well do I know why there grazes near by thee the horse ever ready for the speedy journey. It is that thou mayst spring upon it and ride unchecked, a son speeding to avenge his father. To you only, O oh, Vidar, the silent one, will I speak of the secrets of my doings. Who but you can know why I, Odin, the eldest of the gods, hung on the tree Yggdrasil nine days and nine nights, mine own spear transfixing me. I hung upon that windy tree that I might learn the wisdom that would give me power in the nine worlds. On the ninth night the runes of wisdom appeared before mine eyes, and slipping down from the tree I took them to myself. And I shall tell why my ravens fly to thee, carrying in their beaks scraps of leather. It is that thou mayest make for thyself a sandal. With that sandal on thou mayest put thy foot on the lower jaw of a mighty wolf and rend him. All the shoemakers of the earth throw on the ground scraps of the leather they use, so that thou mayst be able to make the sandal for thy wolf-rending foot. And I have counselled the dwellers on earth to cut off the fingernails and the toenails of their dead, lest from those fingernails and toenails the giants make for themselves the ship Nagfar, in which they will sail from the north on the day of Ragnarok, the twilight of the gods. More, Vidar, I will tell to thee. I, living amongst men, have wed the daughter of a hero. My son shall live as a mortal amongst mortals. Sigi his name shall be. From him shall spring heroes who will fill Valhalla, my own hall in Asgard, with heroes against the day of our strife with the giants, with Surtur of the flaming sword. For long Odin stayed in that silent place communing with his silent son, with Vidar, who with his brother would live beyond the dwellers of Asgard, and who would bring into another day and another world the memory of the Aesir and the Vanir. For long Odin spoke with him, and then he went across the wilderness where the grass and the bushes grew, and where that horse grazed in readiness for the sudden journey. He went toward the seashore, where the Aesir and the Vanir were now gathered for the feast that old Aegir, the giant king of the sea, had offered them. End of section 10 Hey guys, Joe here from the Modern Heathen Man. How are you guys tonight? I hope I'm meeting you well. Anyway, I wanted to tell you guys, while I'm out traveling, it's not always feasible to carry my whole big altar box with me. So sometimes I like a little something in my pocket. 
And I found a great place to get that from. That's Odin's Beard Woodworking. Great little place out there. Makes small little pocket altars for you with candles and um, gods and everything in them, little sayings and such. Wonderful work that this man does. Carves everything by hand. He has a couple things going on here. He has little pocket altars that I'm talking about for $25. He has small D poles of 5 to 6 inches for $40. 7 to 8 inches for $45. 9 to 10 for $50. And 11 to 12 for $60. He has 26 different deities to choose from and more coming every day. Your choices right now are Odin, Thor, Tyr, Loki, Freyr, Balder, Bragi, Hemdal, Njord, Fenrir, Ullr, Vidar, Hermod, Hel, Freya, Ostri, Scotty, Sif, Air, Frigg, Var, Thrud, Idun, Sigun, Ran, and Yord. That's a lot of different gods to choose from. So he can meet anybody's needs. Tell him what you want. You can go ahead and find him at www.odinsbeardwoodworking.com. He also has a Facebook page, and I know he does some stuff live every once in a while that you can actually watch him carve those things. Anyway, give him a good uh, look-see there and see if he has something that you can use. I guarantee his little pocket ultras will come in handy for you. So anyway, thanks, guys. Have a great night. Bye-bye. Section 11 of The Children of Odin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. The Children of Odin, The Book of Northern Myths, by Parik Kolum. Part 2. Chapter 5. Thor and Loki in the Giant's City. All but a few of the dwellers of Asgard had come to the feast offered by Ygir the Old, the Giant King of the Sea. Frigga, the queenly wife of Odin, was there, and Frey and Freya, Iduna, who guarded the apples of youth, and Bragi, her husband, Tyr, the great swordsman, and Njord, the god of the sea, Skadi, who wedded Njord, and whose hatred for Loki was fierce, and Sif, whose golden hair was once shorn off by Loki the mischievous. Thor and Loki were there. The dwellers of Asgard, gathered together in the hall of Ygir, waited for Odin. Before Odin came, Loki made company merry by the tales that he told in mockery of Thor. Loki long since had his lips unloosed from the thong that the dwarf Brock had sewn them with, and Thor had forgotten the wrong that he had done to Sif. Loki had been with Thor in his wanderings through Jotunheim, and about these wanderings he now told mocking tales. He told how he had seen Thor in his chariot of brass drawn by two goats, go across Bifrost, the rainbow bridge. None of the Aesir or the Vanir knew on what adventure Thor was bent, but Loki followed him, and Thor kept him in his company. As they travelled on in the brass chariot drawn by the two goats, Thor told Loki of the adventure on which he was bent. He would go into Jotunheim, even into Utgard, the giant city, and he would try his strength against the giants. He was not afraid of aught that might happen for he carried Mjolnir, his hammer, with him. Their way was through Midgard, the world of men. Once, as they were travelling on, night came upon them as they were hungry and in need of shelter. They saw a peasant's hut, and they drove the chariot toward it. Unyoking the goats and leaving them standing in a hollow beside the chariot, the two, looking not like dwellers in Asgard but like men travelling through the country, 
knocked at the door of the hut and asked for food and shelter. They could have shelter, the peasant and his wife told them, but they could not have food. There was little in that place, and what little there had been they had eaten for supper. The peasant showed them the inside of the hut. It was poor and bare, and there was nothing there to give any one. In the morning, the peasant said, he would go down to the river and catch some fish for a meal. "'We can't wait until morning. We must eat now,' said Thor. "'And I think I can provide a good meal for us all.' He went over to where his goats stood in the hollow beside the chariot of brass, and striking them with his hammer, he left them lifeless on the ground. He skinned the goats then, and taking up the bones very carefully, he left them down on the skins. Skins and bones he lifted up, and bringing them into the house, he left them in a hole above the peasant's fireplace. "'No one,' he said in a commanding voice, "'must touch the bones that I leave here.' Then he brought the meat into the house. Soon it was cooked and laid smoking on the table. The peasant and his wife and son sat round the board with Thor and Loki. They had not eaten plentifully for many days, and now the man and the woman fed themselves well. Thialfi was the name of the peasant's son. He was a growing lad, and had an appetite that had not been satisfied for long. While the meat was on the table, his father and mother had kept him going here and there, carrying water, putting faggots on the fire, and holding a blazing stick so that those at the table might see to eat. There was not much left for him when he was able to sit down, for Thor and Loki had great appetites, and the lad's father and mother had eaten to make up for days of want. So Thialfi got little out of that plentiful feast. When the meal was finished, they lay down on the benches. Thor, because he had made a long journey that day, slept very soundly. Thialfi lay down on a bench too, but his thoughts were still upon the food. When all were asleep, he thought, he would take one of the bones that were in the skins above him, and break and gnaw it. So in the dead of the night the lad stood up on the bench and took down the goatskins that Thor had left so carefully there. He took out a bone, broke it, and gnawed it for the marrow. Loki was awake and saw him do this, but he, relishing mischief as much as ever, did nothing to stay the lad. He put the bone he had broken back in the skins, and he left the skins back in the hole above the fireplace. Then he went to sleep on the bench. In the morning, as soon as they were up, the first thing Thor did was to take the skins out of the hole. He carried them carefully out to the hollow where he had left the goats standing. He put each goatskin down with the bones in it. He struck each with his hammer, and the goats sprang up alive, horns and hoofs and all. But one was not as he had been before. He limped badly. Thor examined the leg and found out that one bone was broken. In terrible anger he turned on the peasant, his wife, and his son. A bone of this goat has been broken under your roof, he shouted. For that I shall destroy your house and leave you all dead under it. Thialfi wept. Then he came forward and touched the knees of Thor. I did not know what harm I did, he said. I broke the bone. Thor had his hammer lifted up to crush him into the earth, but he could not bring it down on the weeping boy. He let his hammer rest on the ground again. "'You will have to do much service for me for having lamed my goat,' he said. "'Come with me.' And so the lad Thialfi went off with Thor and Loki. Thor took in his powerful hands the shafts of the chariot of brass, and he dragged it into a lonely mountain hollow, where neither men nor giants came. 
and they left the goats in a great empty forest to stay resting there until Thor called to them again. Thor and Loki and the lad Thialfi went across from Midgard into Jotunheim. Because of Mjolnir, the great hammer that he carried, Thor felt safe in the realm of the giants. And Loki, who trusted in his own cunning, felt safe too. The lad Thialfi trusted in Thor so much that he had no fear. They were long in making the journey, and while they were travelling, Thor and Loki trained Thialfi to be a quick and a strong lad. One day they came out on a moor. All day they crossed it, and at night it still stretched far before them. A great wind was blowing, night was falling, and they saw no shelter near. In the dusk they saw a shape that looked to be a mountain, and they went toward it, hoping to find some shelter in a cave. Then Loki saw a lower shape that looked as if it might be a shelter. They walked around it, Loki and Thor and the lad Thialfi. It was a house, but a house most oddly shaped. The entrance was a long, wide hall that had no doorway. When they entered this hall they found five long and narrow chambers running off it. "'It is an odd place, but it is the best shelter we can get,' Loki said. "'You and I, Thor, will take the two longest rooms, and the lad Thialfi can take one of the little rooms.' They entered their chambers and they lay down to sleep. But from the mountain outside there came a noise that was like moaning forests and falling cataracts. The chamber where each one slept was shaken by the noise. Neither Thor nor Loki nor the lad Thialfi slept that night. In the morning they left the five-chambered house and turned their faces toward the mountain. It was not a mountain at all, but a giant. He was lying on the ground when they saw him, but just then he rolled over and sat up. "'Little men! Little men!' he shouted to them. "'Have you passed by a glove of mine on your way?' He stood up and looked all round him. "'Oh, I see my glove now,' he said. Thor and Loki and the lad Thialfi stood still as the giant came toward them. He leaned over and picked up the five-roomed shelter they had slept in. He put it on his hand. It was really his glove. Thor gripped his hammer, and Loki and the lad Thialfi stood behind him. But the giant seemed good-humoured enough. "'Where might ye be bound for, little men?' said he. "'To Utgard and Jotunheim,' Thor replied boldly. "'Oh, to that place,' said the giant. "'Come, then, I shall be with ye so far. You can call me Skirmir.' "'Can you give us breakfast?' said Thor. He spoke crossly, for he did not want it to appear that there was any reason to be afraid of the giant. "'I can give you breakfast,' said Skirmir. "'But I don't want to stop to eat now. We'll sit down as soon as I have an appetite. Come along now. Here is my wallet to carry. It has my provisions in it.' He gave Thor his wallet. Thor put it on his back and put Thialfi sitting upon it. On and on the giant strode, and Thor and Loki were barely able to keep up with him. It was midday before he showed any signs of halting to take breakfast. They came to an enormous tree. Under it Skirmir sat down. "'I'll sleep before I eat,' he said. "'But you can open my wallet, little men, and make your meal out of it.' Saying this, he stretched himself out, and in a few minutes Thor and Loki and the lad Thialfi heard the same sounds as kept them awake the night before, sounds that were like forests moaning and cataracts falling. It was Skirmir's snoring. Thor and Loki and the lad Thialfi were too hungry now to be disturbed by these tremendous noises. Thor tried to open the wallet, but he found it was not easy to undo the knots. 
Then Loki tried to open it. In spite of all Loki's cunning he could not undo the knots. Then Thor took the wallet from him and tried to break the knots by main strength. Not even Thor's strength could break them. He threw the wallet down in his rage. The snoring of Skimir became louder and louder. Thor stood up in his rage. He grasped Mjolnir and flung it at the head of the sleeping giant. The hammer struck him on the head, but Skirmir only stirred in his sleep. "'Did a leaf fall on my head?' he said. He turned round on the other side and went to sleep again. The hammer came back to Thor's hand. As soon as Skirmir snored he flung it again, aiming at the giant's forehead. It struck there. The giant opened his eyes. "'Has an acorn fallen on my head?' he said. Again he went to sleep. But now Thor, terribly roused, stood over his head with the hammer held in his hands. He struck him on the forehead. It was the greatest blow that Thor had ever dealt. "'A bird is pecking at my forehead. There is no chance to sleep here,' said Skirmir, sitting up. "'And you, little men, did you have breakfast yet? Toss over my wallet to me, and I shall give you some provision.' The lad Thialfi brought him the wallet. Skimir opened it, took out his provisions, and gave a share to Thor and Loki and the lad Thialfi. Thor would not take provision from him, but Loki and the lad Thialfi took it and ate. When the meal was finished Skirmir rose up and said, "'Time for us to be going toward Utgard.' As they went on their way Skirmir talked to Loki. "'I always feel very small when I go into Utgard,' he said. "'You see, I'm such a small and a weak fellow, and the folk who live there are so big and powerful. But you and your friends we welcomed in Utgard. They will be sure to make little pets of you." And then he left them, and they went into Utgard, the city of the giants. Giants were going up and down in the streets. They were not so huge as Skirmir would have them believe, Loki noticed. Utgard was the Asgard of the giants. But in its buildings there was not a line of the beauty that there was in the palaces of the gods, Gladsheim and Bribdablik or Fensalir. Huge but shapeless the buildings arose, like mountains or icebergs. Oh, beautiful Asgard, with the dome above it of the deepest blue! Asgard with the clouds around it heaped up like mountains of diamonds! Asgard with its rainbow bridge and its glittering gates! Oh, beautiful Asgard! Could it be indeed that these giants would one day overthrow you? Thor and Loki with the lad Thialfi went to the palace of the king. The hammer that Thor gripped would, they knew, make them safe even there. They passed between rows of giant guards and came to the king's seat. "'We know you, Thor and Loki,' said the giant king. "'And we know that Thor has come to Utgard to try his strength against the giants. We shall have a contest to-morrow. Today there are sports for our boys. If your young servant should like to try his swiftness against our youths, let him enter the race to-day.' Now Thialfi was the best runner in Midgard and all the time he had been with them, Loki and Thor had trained him in quickness, and so Thialfi was not fearful of racing against the giant's youths. The king called on one named Hugi, and placed him against Thialfi. The pair started together. Thialfi sped off. Loki and Thor watched the race anxiously, for they thought it would be well for them if they had a triumph over the dwellers in Utgard in the first contest. But they saw Hugi leave Thialfi behind. They saw the giant youth reach the winning post, circle round it, and come back to the starting-place, before Thialfi had reached the end of the course. Thialfi, who did not know how it was that he had been beaten, asked that he be let run the race with Hugi again. The pair started off once more, 
And this time it did not seem to Thor and Loki that Hugi had left the starting place at all. He was back there almost as soon as the race had started. They came back from the racing ground to the palace. The giant king and his friends with Thor and Loki sat down to the supper-table. "'Tomorrow,' said the king, "'we shall have our great contest when Asa Thor will show us his power. Have you of Asgard ever heard of one who would enter a contest in eating? We might have a contest in eating at this supper-board if we could get one who would match himself with Logi here. He can eat more than any one in Jotunheim.' "'And I,' said Loki, "'can eat more than any two in Jotunheim. I will match myself against your Logi.' "'Good,' said the giant king. And all the giants present said, "'Good! This will be a sight worth seeing.' Then they put scores of plates along one side of the table, each plate filled with meat. Loki began at one end, and Logi began at the other. They started to eat, moving toward each other as each cleared a plate. Plate after plate was emptied, and Thor standing by with the giants was amazed to see how much Loki ate. But Logi on the other side was leaving plate after plate emptied. At last the two stood together with scores of plates on each side of them. "'He has not defeated me!' cried Loki. "'I have cleared as many plates as your champion, O king of the giants!' "'But you have not cleared them so well,' said the king. "'Loki has eaten all the meat that was upon them,' said Thor. "'But Logi has eaten the bones with the meat,' said the giant king. "'Look and see if it be not so.' Thor went to the plates. Where Loki had eaten the bones were left on the plates. Where Logi had eaten nothing was left. Bones as well as meat were consumed, and all the plates were left bare. "'We are beaten,' said Thor to Loki. "'Tomorrow, Thor,' said Loki, "'you must show all your strength, or the giants will cease to dread the might of the dwellers in Asgard.' "'Be not afraid,' said Thor. "'No one in Jotunheim will triumph over me.' The next day Thor and Loki came into the great hall of Utgard. The giant king was there with a throng of his friends. Thor marched into the hall with Mjolnir, his great hammer in his hands. "'Our young men have been drinking out of this horn,' said the king and they want to know if you, Asa Thor, would drink out of it a morning draught. But I must tell you they think that no one of the Aesir could empty the horn at one draught. "'Give it to me,' said Thor. "'There is no horn you can hand me that I cannot empty at a draught.' A great horn, brimmed and flowing, was brought over to him. Handing Mjolnir to Loki and bidding him stand so that he might keep the hammer in sight, Thor raised the horn to his mouth. He drank and drank. He felt sure there was not a drop left in the horn as he laid it on the ground. "'There,' he gasped, "'your giant horn is drained.' The giants looked within the horn and laughed. "'Drained, Asa Thor?' said the giant king. "'Look into the horn again. You have hardly drunk below the brim.' And Thor looked into it and saw that the horn was not half emptied. In a mighty rage he lifted it to his lips again. He drank and drank and drank. Then, satisfied that he had emptied it to the bottom, he left the horn on the ground and walked over to the other side of the hall. "'Thor thinks he has drained the horn,' said one of the giants, lifting it up. "'But see, friends, what remains in it.' Thor strode back and looked again into the horn. It was still half-filled. He turned round to see that all the giants were laughing at him. "'Asa Thor! Asa Thor!' said the giant king. We know not how you are going to deal with us in the next feat, but you certainly are not able to drink against the giants." Said Thor, I can lift up and set down any being in your hall. As he said this, a great iron-coloured cat bounded into the hall and stood before Thor, her back arched and her fur bristling. Then lift the cat off the ground, 
said the giant king. Thor strode to the cat, determined to lift her up and fling her amongst the mocking giants. He put his hands to the cat, but he could not raise her. Up, up went Thor's arms, up, up, as high as they could go. The cat's arched back went up to the roof, but her feet were never taken off the ground. And as he heaved and heaved with all his might, he heard the laughter of the giants all around him. He turned away, his eyes flaming with anger. "'I am not wont to try to lift cats,' he said. "'Bring me one to wrestle with, and I swear you shall see me overthrow him.' "'Here is one for you to wrestle with, Asa Thor,' said the king. Thor looked round and saw an old woman hobbling toward him. She was blear-eyed and toothless. "'This is Ellie, my ancient nurse,' said the giant king. "'She is the one we would have you wrestle with.' "'Thor does not wrestle with old women. I will lay my hands on your tallest giants instead.' "'Ellie has come where you are,' said the giant king. "'Now it is she who will lay hands on you.' The old woman hobbled toward Thor, her eyes gleaming under her falling fringes of grey hair. Thor stood, unable to move as the hag came toward him. She laid her hands upon his arms. Her feet began to trip at his. He tried to cast her from him. Then he found that her feet and her hands were as strong against his as bands and stakes of iron. Then began a wrestling match in earnest between Thor and the ancient crone Ellie. Round and round the hall they wrestled, and Thor was not able to bend the old woman backward nor sideways. Instead he became less and less able under her terrible grasp. She forced him down, down, and at last he could only save himself from being left prone on the ground by throwing himself down on one knee and holding the hag by the shoulders. She tried to force him down on the ground, but she could not do that. Then she broke from him, hobbled to the door, and went out of the hall. Thor rose up and took the hammer from Loki's hands. Without a word he went out of the hall and along the ways and toward the gate of the giant city. He spoke no word to Loki, nor to the lad Thialfi, who went with him for the seven weeks that they journeyed through Jotunheim. End of section 11 Section twelve of the Children of Odin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. The Children of Odin, the Book of Northern Myths, by Parik Kolum. Part two, Chapter six. How Thor and Loki befooled Thrym the giant. Loki told another tale about Thor, about Thor and Thrym a stupid giant who had cunning streaks in him. Loki and Thor had been in this giant's house. He had made a feast for them, and Thor had been unwatchful. Then when they were far from Jotunheim, Thor missed Mjolnir, missed the hammer that was the defence of Asgard and the help of the gods. He could not remember how or where he had mislaid it. Loki's thoughts went toward Thrym, that stupid giant who yet had cunning streaks in him. Thor, who had lost the hammer that he had sworn never to let out of his sight, did not know what to do. But Loki thought it would be worth while to see if Thrym knew anything about it. He first went to Asgard. 
he hurried across the rainbow bridge, and passed Heimdall without speaking to him. To none of the dwellers in Asgard whom he met did he dare relate the tidings of Thor's loss. He spoke to none, until he came to Frigga's palace. To Frigga he said, you must lend me your falcon dress until I fly to Thrym's dwelling and find out if he knows where Mjolnir is. If every feather was silver, I would give it to you to go on such an errand," Frigga said. So Loki put on the falcon dress and flew to Jotunheim and came near Thrym's dwelling. He found the giant upon a hillside, putting golden and silver collars upon the necks of his hounds. Loki, in the plumage of a falcon, perched on the rock above him, watching the giant with falcon eyes. And while he was there, he heard the giant speak boastful words. "'I put collars of silver and gold on you now, my hounds,' said he. "'But soon we giants will have the gold of Asgard to deck our hounds and our steeds, yea, even the necklace of Freya to put upon you, the best of my hounds. For Mjolnir, the defence of Asgard, is in Thrym's holding. Then Loki spoke to him. Yea, we know that Mjolnir is in thy possession, O Thrym, he said, but know thou that the eyes of the watchful gods are upon thee. Ha! Loki, shape-changer, said Thrym, you are there, but all your watching will not help you to find Mjolnir. I have buried Thor's hammer eight miles deep in the earth. Find it if you can. It is below the caves of the dwarfs. It is useless for us to search for Thor's hammer, said Loki. Eh, Thrym? It is useless for you to search for it, said the giant sulkily. But what a recompense you would gain if you restored Thor's hammer to the dwellers in Asgard, Loki said. No, cunning Loki, I will never restore it, not for any recompense, said Thrym. Yet bethink thee, Thrym, said Loki, is there naught in Asgard you would like to own? No treasure, no possession? Odin's ring or Frey's ship, Skidbladnir? No, no, said Thrym. Only one thing could the dwellers in Asgard offer me that I would take in exchange for Mjolnir, Thor's hammer. And what would that be, Thrym? said Loki, flying toward him. She whom many giants have striven to gain, Freya, for my wife," said Thrym. Loki watched Thrym for long with his falcon eyes. He saw that the giant would not alter his demand. "'I will tell the dwellers in Asgard of your demand,' he said at last, and he flew away. Loki knew that the dwellers in Asgard would never let Freya be taken from them to become the wife of Thrym, the stupidest of the giants. He flew back. By this time all the dwellers in Asgard had heard of the loss of Mjolnir, the help of the gods. Heimdall shouted to him as he crossed the rainbow bridge to ask what tidings he brought back. But Loki did not stop to speak to the warden of the bridge, but went straight to the hall where the gods sat in council. To the Aesir and the Vanir he told Thrym's demand. None would agree to let the beautiful Freya go to live in Jotunheim as a wife to the stupidest of the giants. All in the council were cast down. The gods would never again be able to help mortal men, for now that Mjolnir was in the giants' hands, all their strength would have to be used in the defence of Asgard. So they sat in the council with looks downcast. But cunning Loki said, 
I have thought of a trick that may win back the hammer from stupid Thrym. Let us pretend to send Freya to Jotunheim as a bride for him, but let one of the gods go in Freya's veil and dress." "'Which of the gods would bring himself to do so shameful a thing?' said those in the council. "'Oh, he who lost the hammer, Thor, should be prepared to do as much to win it back,' said Loki. "'Thor, Thor, let Thor win back the hammer from Thrym by Loki's trick,' said the Aesir and the Vanir. They left it to Loki to arrange how Thor should go to Jotunheim as a bride for Thrym. Loki left the council of the gods and came to where he had left Thor. "'There is but one way to win the hammer back, Thor,' he said, "'and the gods and council have decreed that you shall take it.' "'What is the way?' said Thor. "'But no matter what it is, tell me of it, and I shall do as thou dost say.' "'Then,' said laughing Loki, I am to take you to Jotunheim as a bride for Thrym. Thou art to go in bridal dress and veil, in Freya's veil and bridal dress." "'What? I dress in woman's garb?' shouted Thor. "'Yea, Thor, and wear a veil over your head and a garland of flowers upon it.' "'I? I wear a garland of flowers?' "'And rings upon thy fingers, and a bunch of housekeeper's keys in thy girdle. "'Cease thy mockery, Loki,' said Thor roughly, "'or I shall shake thee. "'It is no mockery. "'Thou wilt have to do this to win Mjolnir back for the defence of Asgard. "'Thrym will take no other recompense than Freya. "'I would mock him by bringing thee to him in Freya's veil and dress. "'When thou art in his hall and he asks thee to join hands with him, "'say thou wilt not until he puts Mjolnir into thy hands. Then, when thy mighty hammer is in thy holding, thou canst deal with him and with all in his hall. And I shall be with thee as thy bridesmaid, O sweet, sweet maiden Thor." "'Loki,' said Thor, "'thou didst devise all this to mock me. I in a bridal dress, I with a bride's veil upon me. Oh, the dwellers in Asgard will never cease to laugh at me.' "'Yea,' said Loki but there will never be laughter again in Asgard unless thou art able to bring back the hammer that thine unwatchfulness lost." "'True,' said Thor unhappily. "'And is this, thinkst thou, Loki, the only way to win back Mjolnir from Thrym?' "'It is the only way, O Thor,' said the cunning Loki. So Thor and Loki set out for Jotunheim and the dwelling of Thrym. A messenger had gone before them to tell Thrym that Freya was coming with her bridesmaid, that the wedding-feast was to be prepared, and the guests gathered, and that Mjolnir was to be at hand, so that it might be given over to the dwellers in Asgard. Thrym and his giant mother hastened to have everything in readiness. Thor and Loki came to the giant's house in the dress of a bride and a bridesmaid. A veil was over Thor's head, hiding his beard and his fierce eyes. A red embroidered robe he wore, and at his side hung a girdle of housekeeper's keys. Loki was veiled, too. The hall of Thrym's great house was swept and garnished, and great tables were laid for the feast. And Thrym's mother was going from one guest to another, vaunting that her son was getting one of the beauteous dwellers in Asgard for his bride, Freya, whom so many of the giants had tried to win. When Thor and Loki stepped across the threshold, Thrym went to welcome them. He wanted to raise the veil of his bride and give her a kiss. Loki quickly laid his hand on the giant's shoulder. "'Forbear!' he whispered. 
Do not raise her veil. We dwellers in Asgard are reserved and bashful. Freya would be much offended to be kissed before this company." "'Ay, ay,' said Thrym's old mother. "'Do not raise thy bride's veil, son. These dwellers in Asgard are more refined in their ways than we, the giants.' Then the old woman took Thor by the hand and led him to the table. The size and the girth of the bride did not surprise the huge giants who were in the wedding company. They stared at Thor and Loki, but they could see nothing of their faces, and little of their forms because of their veils. Thor sat at the table with Thrym on one side of him and Loki on the other. Then the feast began. Thor, not noticing that what he did was unbecoming to a refined maiden, ate eight salmon right away. Loki nudged him and pressed his foot, but he did not heed Loki. After the salmon he ate a whole ox. "'These maids of Asgard,' said the giants to each other, "'they may be refined, as Thrym's mother says, but their appetites are lusty enough.' "'No wonder she eats, poor thing,' said Loki to Thrym. It is eight days since we left Asgard, and Freya never ate upon the way, so anxious was she to see Thrym and come to his house." "'Poor darling, poor darling,' said the giant. "'What she has eaten is little after all.' Thor nodded his head toward the mead vat. Thrym ordered his servants to bring a measure to his bride. The servants were kept coming with measures to Thor. While the giants watched, and while Loki nudged and nodded, he drank three barrels of mead. "'Oh,' said the giants to Thrym's mother, "'we are not so sorry that we failed to win a bride from Asgard.' And now a piece of the veil slipped aside, and Thor's eyes were seen for an instant. "'Oh, how does it come that Freya has such glaring eyes?' said Thrym. "'Poor thing, poor thing,' said Loki. "'No wonder her eyes are glaring and staring. She has not slept for eight nights. So anxious was she to come to you and to your house, Thrym. But now the time has come for you to join hands with your bride. First put into her hands the hammer Mjolnir that she may know the great recompense that the giants have given for her coming." Then Thrym, the stupidest of the giants, rose up and brought Mjolnir, the defense of Asgard, into the feasting hall. Thor could hardly restrain himself from springing up and seizing it from the giant, but Loki was able to keep him still. Thrym brought over the hammer, and put the handle into the hands of her whom he thought was his bride. Thor's hands closed on his hammer. Instantly he stood up, the veil fell off him, his countenance and his blazing eyes were seen by all, he struck one blow on the wall of the house, down it crashed. Then Thor went striding out of the ruin with Loki beside him, while within the giants bellowed as the roof and walls fell down on them. And so was Mjolnir the defense of Asgard, lost and won back. End of section 12